In today's episode, we have the 100% on fire novelist, Brian Washington, who has penned effing beautiful and raw stories straight out of the streets of Houston for his story collection, Lot. He shares his ridiculously envy-inducing publishing journey with you, adding another to the longitudinal study that proves the traditional path to publication is a mythical creature in line with the hippogriff, the Loch Ness, and the chupacabra. Other topics of discussion include the suburb of Houston known as Katy and its food scene, yes there is one, and the importance of finding an amazing agent and editor who really get your work, and perhaps most importantly, why if you want to be a writer, you shouldn't be an asshole, and if you are a writer, you should also not be an asshole. And you're so patient and kind, oh my god. No, I mean, can you imagine if like... I was like a dick. Like, that'd be really, <laughs> that wouldn't be good, right? Like, that would be, yeah, I can. Yeah. But I mean, I can't really imagine you. Uh, we need to send thank you cards to everyone whose schedule we fucked up. No, it's just my editor. Like, we're supposed to talk about like the next thing. Like, we're editing it right now. It's not. It's like just not important. Editor. I mean, it's like it's just important enough to where I should do it, <laughs> but not. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. I heard Gia Tolentino, that other current literary wunderkind, speak of our next guest as the guy who first wrote about Houston without being afraid to talk about it in a literary way, as a literary city. I can think of lots of words to describe Brian Washington's prose, bold, raw, tender, but fearless is a pretty good one. Reading his short story collection Lot, his many essays about this city, the way this city lives in communities that overlap, bump up against each other in messy and beautiful ways, the way this city loves, essays that also are somehow simultaneously about food. It's like Washington pulls at a little loose thread that might be the beginning of a whole or just an imperfection in your very favorite sweater. I've lived here for a long time, much of it way out in the burbs like so many Houstonians. I lived apart, but also, like many, we move around a lot the way his stories do. For some formative years, I lived in a tiny apartment on Fairview just east of Montrose, the boulevard, but also the Montrose of gay bars, biker dives, and taquerias that show up in his short stories. The memory of those years is rich for me, but still, reading these stories was like burning the particulars of place, a place you've known all along. It's like burning them into your memory, or some deeper seat of memory and feeling and being itself that makes the place, I don't know, truer. So, yeah, as Washington writes, he pulls at that thread, makes you see inside, feel for the hands that made it. Notice how it all came together and says, maybe it's fine being a little raggedy on the edges, just maybe you should take a little more care with it and pay attention. Brian Washington, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank y'all so much for having me. That was really beautiful, by the way. I appreciate it. Would you mind reading us, starting us off with an excerpt? Yeah, absolutely. From from the collection? So I'll read a little bit of the first story, yeah? So about two, three pages or so. Sure. Lockwood. Roberto was brown, and his people lived next door, so of course I went over on weekends. They were full Mexican. That made a superior... My father found every opportunity to say it, but not to their faces. So Ma took it upon herself to visit most evenings. She still didn't have many friends on the block. We were too dark for the Blancos, too Latin for the Blacks. But Roberto's mother dug the company. She invited us in. Her husband worked construction, pouring cement into Grand Parkway, and they didn't have any papers, so you know how that goes. No one was hiring. She wasn't about to take chances. What she did with her days off was look after Roberto. They lived in the shotgun with swollen pipes. It was the house you shook your head at when you drove up the road. Ma brought juca and beans from the restaurant, but then my father saw and asked her who the fuck had paid for it. 
Javi, Jan, and I watched our parents circle the kitchen until our father grabbed a bowl of rice and threw it on the tile. He said this was what it felt like to watch your money walk. Maybe now Ma'd think before she shit on her familia. And of course, it didn't stop her. If anything, she went more often. But Ma started leaving the meals at home. Instead, she brought me and some coffee and 10 crackers. Roberto had this pug nose. He was pimply in all the wrong places. He wore his hair like the white boys, and when I asked why that was, he called it one less thing to worry about. His fam couldn't afford regular cuts, so whenever they came around, the barber clipped off everything, and I told him he looked like a rat, like one of the Blanquitos biking all over town, and Roberto said that was cool, but I was a fat black gorilla. He was 15, a few years older than me. He told me about the bus he'd taken straight from Monterrey. His father left Houston first, until he could send for the rest of them too. And when I asked Roberto about Mexico, he said everything in Texas tasted like sand. Roberto didn't go to school. He spent all day mumbling English back to his mother's busted TV. Since it was the year of my endless flu and I didn't exist to Javi anymore, he'd taken up with the local hoods by then. That meant I spent a fuck ton of time next door. They had this table and these candles and a mattress in the living room. When Roberto's father wasn't out breaking his back, I usually found him snoring on it. His mother was always exhausted, always crying to Ma. She said it wasn't that this country was rough or everything was just so loose. Ma told her to wait it out. That's just what America did to you. They learned to adjust. She cracked the code, but what she had to do is believe in it. Fantastic. That is why Lot was on Electric Literature's 20 Best Debuts of 2019, yeah. Entertainment Weekly's Best of 2019. Yeah, so many list. lists. Yeah, the lists. <laughs> <laughs> list. Speaking of lists, your writing includes a lot of lists. Mm. Um, the sixth one, et cetera, and how many. There's the Faulknerian We in mm. A-Leaf, um, which I fucking loved that story. I appreciate it. So yeah. good. Um, and at the, in A-Leaf, which are specifically named neighbors melding into one observational judgmental entity you know on the surface is a, a simple device but it's it's really hard hitting it's so good and just thinking about this power of lists I, I, like where where does that come from maybe lists underscore something bigger for you the sort of problems of categorizing things mm. I think that there's a literary answer and there's like a more practical answer. And I think the practical one is probably simpler. It's just I process things much easier through lists myself. Like if I don't make a list for something, like I'm just not going to do it. It's just not something that's going to happen in my life. So it is like a daily thing <laughs> yeah. that I end up doing. But I think that there's something fascinating about lists on the page because the appearance of one thing and then another thing and then another thing alludes to a sort of progression. And that progression allows the reader to establish a sort of rhythm. And once you've established that rhythm, it makes it a good deal easier to just bring them a bit closer into your world, the world that you're trying to create on the page. And what I think is really interesting sometimes is establishing a list or the beginning of a list and then subverting the expectation for mm -hmm. that chronology or what would otherwise be approached as a sort of linear approach to a text, right? Like if a traditional narrative is one, two, three, four, five, five different scenes, what happens if we start with five and then we transition into three and then we go to two and then four and then one? Like how does it impact like the weight of a narrative or the arc of a story if we end with the first chronological thing? Like, does it reframe, like, our understanding of the things that had occurred? So that, in that way, I think that lists can be super effective in their familiarity and also in the ways in which you can just sort of skew that familiarity to make something interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking what you just mentioned about um, your talk with Ocean Vong at, mm. at Brazos and the way he talked about subverting our Western concept of mm. the narrative arc and, and just allowing stories to bump up against each other like mm. i said in the intro that they they exist beside one another but not necessarily directly impacting and i felt that way a lot in your in your collection the way we have a, a narrator that the unnamed narrator narrator mm. at the beginning who appears and reappears in different ways that aren't chronological and i i thought it was really satisfying yeah i, I love appreciate reading stories that. that yeah um 
Did you have other things in mind when you were thinking about, or other um, books that do the same thing with cities? Um, with, you know, in a way, a love letter about our place? Yeah, a few that were, well, one that was deeply pivotal for me was a book called American Sun by Brian Escalon Rowley. The protagonist is a, a Filipino younger brother, and it's about his navigation of the city, his navigation of his family, living in a single parent household. And reading that text and seeing the way that the city that he lived in in California was both a character and just an mm -hmm. integral part of all the conflicts that the protagonist was undergoing was really important to me. Also, like Natsuo Kredi knows, uh, she has a book called Real World. Uh, she's a Japanese author. That was really good for me. Uh, Hajen's uh, A Good Fall was really important to me. Mm -hmm. And also uh, Patricia Engel. Um, she is a Flor Florida writer, actually. And she has a collection called Vita and uh, the ways in which she wrote about both suburban Florida and also Miami and the ways in which the communities that the characters were a part of deeply informed where the characters not only went, but where they could go, like the ceilings that they um, found themselves approaching and the ways in which those ceilings and the ways in which the floors in their lives like impacted those conflicts was oh, really man, important. Oh, man, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe like the like the quotidian answer that everybody turns to, but it doesn't make it any less of an answer. Is like uh, House on Mega Street by Sandra yeah, Cisneros. I think sure. that was the first text I read where community and like a locale was deeply important to the narrative and that was that reframed how i approached a lot of my storytelling yeah yeah, yeah. i'm representing jess here because she we somehow lost her but she her total gig is place as character it's the thing she loves the most and so she's a huge fan of this too and it's so cool i mean selfishly it's really cool to see houston represented in that way yeah i hadn't and I've been like careful not to say like it, nobody has done it. Like a few right, people right, have right. thrown that out, but I don't want to throw that out because I mean people people are actively writing about Houston, and I don't want to like diminish their efforts. But I hadn't seen the iteration of the city that I wanted to see. Yeah, but yeah. I think that that's the case for everyone that's writing about a place because the way that I view it, the way that you view it, are going to be wildly different, even if it is the same geographic area, right? Because we're going to notice right. different things because we're coming from different places. So I mean, I'm just hoping for more books about Houston and from varied perspectives i think that would be like the most ideal thing to come out of a lot like an increased interest and in, you know oh yeah me too yeah. ben rybeck did a great interview with you for lit hub and he goes as far as to sort of list again list the the other writers who have written about houston but mm -hmm. yeah i think you're doing something different about the city and and not to say that your way is the only way to see it. Just like you said, there's plenty of ways. Yeah, yeah, there's just different it. ways, yeah. Lots of room. You've written for a ton of really lovely outlets, Hazlitt and The All, which we're all sad about. Yeah, The All, oh. yeah, this is sad, yeah. And Catapult. And this was a difficult question for us to kind of think through because it feels a little bit like watching your like this band that you secretly love make it big. Because now you're, you know, you're in The New Yorker. Was it two of these stories are in The New Yorker? Uh, from Lot specifically, mm -hmm. just one, just one. Just one, yeah. okay. And then you're writing for The New York Times, and we're like your biggest fans, and <sighs> so excited to see you in those those outlets. But does it feel different to you when you approach the page that, I don't know, it's like it's less scrappy, mm. you know what I mean? That's a really good question, and it's one that, I think about a lot and then I also don't think about it at all. I think from like maybe a just like a the me Brian answer and not like the business answer is that I really didn't expect to have like a career in writing. So like insofar as I'm interested in fiction, like there's I'm interested in writing about the communities that I'm interested in writing about and the things that I'm interested in writing about. So if I'm not able to do those things, like I just won't do it. You know, I, you know, I mean, I would always rather be like reading than writing. And if like someone is, you know, writing something that I'm interested in in a way that, you know, is good for me, then I'm usually just like, fuck it. Like, why would I like sit down and put myself through that? You know, so like if I'm doing something, then it's because I would like to be doing it. And I think that kind of informs the work that I'm doing and maybe the more business answer is that I'm less interested and I, and I know that there's like 
it's one thing to say this when you've written for like the New Yorker, like the times and so on, but like, I'm less interested in the venue that I am with the editor that I'm working with. That relationship. Yeah. The relationship is more important to me than the venue to be quite honest, because if you're working with an editor, like in my experience, who's like amenable to the things that you're trying to do, then you don't get those sort of large variations in voice and focus as you move from like venue to venue. And of course, like you have to write, towards the venue like everyone has their house style like gq's house style is wildly different from like bon apps and and bon appetites which is wildly different from like the new yorker and so on so there are certain things that are skewed but if you know y'all can you think of a specific just like inside inside Uh, scoop kind of i don't don't use the ampersand ever well for example like and there are variations depending on the editor that you're working with at certain venues like there are some editors that i've worked with at the new yorker who are like not here for m dashes and then others who are like fine with uh letting me do that like some editors at the new yorker are like maybe not so cool with casual drug references whereas others are like okay just like do what you're trying to do so just like sort of figuring out like who you mesh with and in my case like I've just been really lucky to work with so many editors that have taught me a lot and you know have have allowed me to do what I want to do so that you the flip side is that is that I end up working with like the same editors over and over again and it it takes a lot for me to work with like someone new because I just don't I don't know you you know so but uh but you know I've just been really fortunate in that regard I I really love to hear again I'll mention the the Ben Rybeck article because you said this great thing that um, a lot of writing feels really shitty to you, but writing a lot was shitty and fun. Yeah, yeah. And I find a lot of writing to be really shitty too. So I just wondered if you could define shitty, <laughs> like how it's shitty for you. Because the experience of writing is shitty. I, because I would rather like be out in the world, like doing things. You know, like I'd always rather, <laughs> you know, I wish I had like a more eloquent or like fun answer, but I would always rather be hanging out with friends or like going to get something to eat or like at a bar than just like, because so, when you're right, I mean, at least in my experience, like I'm sitting down in the room and it's you and the blank page yeah. and prior to having something on there, I think the relationship to the page becomes a bit different once you have, I don't know, whether it's 500 words or like 50,000 words, like once something is there, it's it's quite, at that point for me, it just feels more like a puzzle more so than anything else. Yeah, like yeah, I've yeah. been playing with the form and trying to create a narrative out of that and adding weight here and taking it away there. But like actually sitting down is like the struggle for me, like, because <laughs> yeah. I quite like editing, like editing is fun to mm-hmm. me, but like getting in the seat is fucking sucks yeah so that, that, i guess that's what i mean when i say that it's like yeah. shitty um but lot was like really lot was fun yeah lot, lot was fun to write because i wanted to see there i kind of knew what my limitations were for a lot so running up against those was fun like the novel i'm editing now with my editor that was fun in a different way because it was trying to move past those sort of limitations or like work within them so it was it was fun and that i wanted to see i wanted like limitations of the form limit no not really limitations of the form but more limitations like with myself like i know that i'm not so comfortable with the third person for example so it would it meant something to me to have the longest story in this book be the third person right like that was like a challenge the story took like two years to write whereas like with first person like i'm much more comfortable like because that's just something like i'm more i think i'm pretty attuned to dialogue and i'm pretty attuned to voice if i can catch the rhythm of a character so trying to work towards pushing my personal limitations and lot was one thing and then once i knew what i could and couldn't do and what i was comfortable with and not comfortable with with the novel like trying to push that a bit further because at least for me like it would be easy to do the same thing like i think it would be mm. having written lot i do not think it would be difficult to have written like lot two for the next book so I, but i didn't want to like do that so a was, lot yeah yeah you, know, you just like yeah just, like just add different street names and just the next house over that sort of thing but you didn't like the title lot too i think that's amazing oh i think it's a great title actually it's just maybe not for me but if any like netflix like or comma t-o-o no just just uh lot comma two t-o yeah that's better you know lot too yeah yeah no no that's it's so rad
Well, so you start with dialogue mm. for your short stories. Did you have the same feeling in when you started working on? Can I say the title of the next book? Yeah, Memorial. Yeah. Which is a novel. Like, yeah. Is it the same it's a novel. sort of impetus that starts your creative juices, which I hate. Yeah, that's like juices. Like that's like it's it's really like juices is like a gross word. Uh, Moist (laughs) is like a really. I think they're like on the same. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Words that no one should use. Um, I apologize. No, it's all right. Creative. Uh, I'll try to get over it. Juju is that? Juju. You know, it's still better than juice. (laughs) Like (laughs) despite everything considered, it is still better than. uh, It it was different. I mean, memorial is different in that there is a zine Jason Parham has. Um, he works over at Wired now, but he used to work at The Fader and he has an ongoing scene called Spook and he had a fiction issue with uh, Vincent Cunningham and Angela Flournoy and um, oh, man, awesome. Hwasu and like a really, like it was a really cool list and he asked me, which is really kind of him. So I wrote a story for that and I was really interested in the story that I wrote for that, but I didn't know if like it was interesting to me. I didn't know if it would be interesting to other people. So I think it was the sort of stereotypical, like you have the thing that you write that's like fun to you and interesting to you. And then you're working on this other thing that you're maybe trying to sell. And yeah. the thing that was fun to me sort of crept into the former idea that hopefully would have sold and like done that. And that became the, it became the project in that way. Yeah. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And does dialogue function the same way it functions the same way i mean i'd like to think that i've gotten a bit better at dialogue since slot because i wrote lot it's like fucking like four years ago it was like when i like finished slot because we sold it at the beginning of 2017 so i finished editing it at the end of 2016 with my agent so i finished writing it in the spring of 2016 so it's been a little while since i finished a lot which creates like an interesting sense of vertigo and that like this is the first thing insofar as fiction a lot of people are coming up for me like approaching me yeah and you change you know you change and like you write different so that's why like even talking about it is like really fascinating because it's a time capsule in a lot of ways so yeah but i still approach dialogue the same way but i'm thinking of it a bit differently now i think like now my focus is like Originally, it was like, how do I create a sort of ambiance, like the feeling of being in the room between the reader and the folks on the page. And now it's like getting a little bit closer to that, like, versalimitude of like being in the scene in a way that I wasn't really thinking of for a lot. For a lot, like my concern was like just trying to get words on the page and make it make sense and now like it's like okay like how do you make it like good actually Uh, that is not how a lot feels like to me at all i think the dialogue is okay so can you say uh, something about the publishing journey with riverhead like yeah you had four years of writing yeah i came to writing like really late like so late like i didn't i did not grow up thinking i was gonna be a writer like i wanted to bake originally and then after like high school ish i was like okay like did you go to high school in houston yeah i went to well katie i suppose like i went to james e taylor um katie uh i don't want to like shit on james e taylor on the record yeah it sucked Uh, (laughs) yeah i get too late now yeah 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 it really sucked going to to james e taylor so sorry if you go to james e taylor oh look katie's like so different now like it's like really diverse and like yeah i heard the midday npr show about food and they were talking about all this holy shit it's so cool have you done this there's some sushi place that everybody's talking about it's so cool now we were in that area uh, i ate lunch with my mom yesterday night we were at like this hawaiian place right next to right off of ramp Parkway. It used so to just fucking be like good. fucking chilies. Yeah, it and... used to be like chilies. Like you got in like an outback. Like oh, yeah, you got like outback four jack in the boxes. Applebee's, like you know, the diversity was like yeah. sushi hana, and that was just like all you fucking got. Like it was, <laughs> but yeah, Katie's like wild now. Um, but when it was not wild when I was there, it was You're actually it was horribly boring when I was there. Um, but for my, and you weren't writing in high school. 
No, no, I didn't give a fuck in high school. I didn't care. Jesus. <laughs> I didn't care. <laughs> like, I super did not care. And so, but I, when I got to undergrad, I took a, a fiction writing course with a handful of people, but I'll probably, uh, I took a few with Matt Johnson, and that was really pivotal for me because oh, yeah. he was really kind to me, and he was very considerate and empathetic in each of his classes and thoughtful in a way that I don't know is the standard or to be expected amongst writing uh, instructors for undergrads specifically. Like right. he just, he took it seriously. Right. And I think that that does a lot when you have someone who takes you seriously. I mean, it certainly did a lot for me. So it was cool. As far as like a journey, like my journey was like really strange. And I don't think that it'll be replicated just because media has changed so much. But I started, so far as I started writing, it was, I mean, it's through essays and nonfiction mostly because I started writing for The All prior to Sylvia Killingsworth taking over. Um, it was Matt Buchanan. I wrote one piece for him and then uh, people, like no one called me a bullshitter. Like no one, they kept yeah, letting yeah. me, you know, they kept letting me do it. And <laughs> that's like the motif of like my writing experience. Like they keep letting <laughs> me do it. And eventually, you know, someone's going to say stop and then I'll stop. That's but awesome. yeah, I wrote for the all. Um, How then, did you, did you cold submit? Did somebody say, Hey, check this, check this essay Yeah. Out? I'm again, it's like a weird experience. Cause like they tell you like, don't cold submit, but I would just like fucking Google the masthead. Yeah, yeah. Like back when uh, Dan Pipenbring was really kind to me and let me publish quite a few essays for uh, the Paris Review. But like the first one I published, like I just emailed him. I was like, "Yo, like here's this essay. <laughs> you want to like publish it?" Yo, <laughs> he, but he was, but he was really, he was really thoughtful and like he replied within twelve hours and he was like, "Yeah." And then like it went up and I was like, "Okay, like it, this." And it's so strange because like that's obviously not. <laughs> Like no. what's supposed to happen? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. but like I would just do that from for a different venue, and eventually it became different because at some point I had a byline. So instead right. of just like yo, like what's good, like that email, I could say hello. Like I've also published for like this place, this place, this place, and so on. Yeah, it starts uh, rolling down the hill. Yeah, in a good way. but yeah, I would just cold the first piece I published for the Times. Like I cold emailed the editor at the time because they used to have uh, the lives column, and just like sent them a piece. And then the hell out. no, seriously, this is this happened. Like he. <laughs> emailed me like three months later the editor at the time and he was like it was really cryptic like I, I tell people about this time they don't believe me it was really cryptic he's like hello like I read this like is it true and I was like yeah and then he was like and then he sent like a much longer email with like publishing details and everything else and I was like fuck man like this is like this industry is, makes no sense whatsoever. no it it's does not absolutely absurd but eventually I had enough of those to where, and simultaneously, I was working on like fiction stuff here and there. I wrote a lot on my phone because I used to work jobs where like I was not working sit down jobs. So at some point, Doing what? I worked uh, the parking lots at NRG for a little while, like helping people park. With I the, worked like the, mm-hmm. the yeah, yeah, that was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I worked at an aftercare place for a while, uh, which is really cool. I did that for like four years. And then I worked as an ESL instructor until very recently, which I loved because uh, getting to work with those kids was the best. Uh, it is the best, I think. Uh, but whilst I was doing that, I slowly amassed a certain amount of fiction. And at some point, it made sense to start looking for an agent because I would talk to friends that had circuitous and similar paths. I talked to Matt a bit about that. And whilst I was looking, I was just really fortunate. Like people were approaching me for stuff and it was a, it only took four months to find an agent once I like sat down to do it. But I had to talk to quite a few people because they're just what I was looking for in an agent. Like my aesthetic was very specific. So it was clear once I found my agent who's the best that, you know, that we might be able to do cool stuff together. And she's like really great. And she read what was then the iteration of the lot manuscript. And she was like, hey, you know, this is I think we could do something with this. So you're actively querying the manuscript then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was I was just really fortunate in the same way that people were like querying me i was able to also ask simultaneously but i reached out to i reached out to danielle first she didn't reach out to me first um which was different and that you know most of the folks i was talking to had reached out first and i think that in itself was something i just got really lucky it's yeah. really really fortunate for the most part yeah there's like a hundred how to get your book published books out there and 
the more we keep talking to writers, like n- nobody's story matches anyone other anyone else's story. No, and all the shit no, never works in the no, way they say it's gonna work. It's really, it's really, and I wish that like in like undergrad writing courses and like MFA situations that there was more of an emphasis on the industry side oh, of God, it, more constantly on the limit that. Yeah, because yeah, there seems to be like an. A, a, an appropriate amount of emphasis like on the story itself and like making the story good and then some courses that i've taken once you start asking about like numbers once you start asking about how to establish contacts and yeah stuff, and, yeah like, the networking word that's like ah oh, that's not important like the story is important but that's just not true like they're both there you can both both things can be true you know so i just right. wish that there was more of an emphasis on that we taught a class just this week to undergrads ian asked us to come in and just talk oh, about around, yeah. the publishing industry and i think at the end of the day, we could have spent like half the time in there by just saying write good stories and then like don't be an asshole. Like do your best to not be an asshole and don't surround yourself with assholes. You like, know, if you do that, you'll just go so far. And <laughs> I'm dead ass serious. Like it's you, let me not get myself in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Just like don't be an asshole. Like it's a it's like it's a fucking weird world out it's there. It's really it's it's something, especially yeah. coming from not book world like just yeah. entering book world and just uh it it's some it's certainly something so like don't be an asshole is like a really good uh, motif yeah 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 so then did riverhead pick up memorial as well yeah they did oh so i suppose a continuation of the, the process uh, daniel and i made a list uh daniel bukowski is my agent at sterling lord we made a list of publishers that we thought might be amenable to the lot we had 10 on the initial list and our plan was to send to those 10 and if not we go to another 10 and so on riverhead was my number one my editor over there laura percy seppi she was into the book and it was just really rad i just got so <laughs> just, just like luck is just you know <laughs> No, 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 no. She actually, they actually got back to me. No, 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 no. They actually got back to me like quite late. Like everyone else like got back to me first, like with very, very kind variations of like, "Mm," like maybe not so much again, because like writing wasn't my primary or even my secondary or tertiary income source. It was kind of like, okay, like, okay, like, I guess, I guess not this time, you know, but Danielle, like, was just so pivotal, like, because even when I would get, like, notes, like, take it out of Houston, which I didn't want to do, or, like, make it a novel, which I wasn't, like, terrible, this happened, like, people didn't, so it's like, uh, yeah, take it out of Houston, like, literally the chapters are, like, names, yeah, just, like, take it out of Houston, or not even, can we make this Chicago, not even take it out so much as, like, diminish the locality and make it more uh, universal, I suppose, oh, my word, this was a note, Uh, were you, like, yeah. No, it was just like it was just confusing because I hadn't spent enough time in like I'd spent a decent amount of time in the media side, but I hadn't spent enough time in the book world side to differentiate between like what was mm. bullshit and like what was yeah. uh quantifiable and actionable like edits and suggestions. It's really slippery to, it's to know how slippery. to navigate it that, is, yeah. especially like you I mean, you're hungry. You want to get it mm-hmm. published. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't know. I mean, at least in so, my case, like I didn't know what I did not know yet. So I would get um, notes and so on, and I just didn't know how to navigate it. But you know, again, Danielle was just like super pivotal, and she awesome. believed in the stories that were there. But so Laura picked it up for Riverhead. Came out with Riverhead. We uh, we, we contractually obligated to send them the next thing, and Laura was like super amenable to it, and she liked it. So. Um, very fortunate didn't have to go back on the market yeah yeah that's awesome and it comes out next year maybe they haven't really uh decided yet but the editing process has been pretty quick for this one so maybe so talk about that are you a like bleeder do you does every word go on the on the page and is like perfect because Mm. it takes so long to write or you like get all the shit down and then like cut it out Probably the latter more so than anything else. Like when I'm writing first drafts, I usually go through three drafts. Like that's sort of my like, arb- I don't know why, it's just the number three. So I'll, I'll write one draft, I'll edit it a second time, edit it a third time. And just for me personally, like I edit pretty thoroughly myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I usually have a, pr- I'm lucky in that I have a pretty good sense of like what I am trying to do. So after the third time, usually I'm just like moving one comma from, you know, one corner to another in a way that doesn't really impact the story too much. So I, I, for 
lot, it was a bit scattershot in the sense that I wrote the stories like whenever I wrote them. And then all of a sudden, like I had enough, there was a book there. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I guess I'll send it out, I guess. But for <laughs> Memorial, it, I made an effort to write the novel. It took about, how long did Memorial take? About a year and a half year and a half to write the novel. I won't do that again because, yeah, I'll take a larger break next time mm, before yeah, the next yeah. thing because it was too much. But Is there a chupacabra in Memorial? Is there a what? A chupacabra? No, 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 no. Memorial has uh, uh, similar concerns through uh, different perspectives. So similar. Okay. Because, I mean, I don't know, like I I don't subscribe to like a lot of writing advice, but I'm, I'm a big believer in the idea that you know, you should lean into the things that interest you, like your obsessions, and you consistently return to them. And at least in my end, that's when I feel like I'm doing my better work. But yeah, I went through three drafts on my own. Now we're in the back and forth stage mm-hmm. between me and my editor. So and do they put a time frame around that? Like, we'll allow for mm-hmm. six months of this, or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, ours was was not six months, but it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> doable. But I'm really, I'm like really good with deadlines, which is really really strange and i think that which might be like a cause of just like not being in book world you know just like working other jobs where like it's not like mm-hmm. like i'm not gonna if i have to do like an incident report like i can't like i'll, I'll send it next friday you know like oh like i missed the deadline Sorry. yeah 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 you know, that's really, like, yeah. You know you just fucking do the thing so like i I, I'm, I don't really miss too many deadlines uh right people were people were really pissed about gia tolentino saying on twitter that she or no I, maybe it was david remnick commented mm. that like gia has never missed a deadline oh i saw that yeah her. and then everyone was like like that's how you have to fucking do do work like that's how the real world works every other industry the, like yeah. there's no like i don't and you know i think there's like a part of that is like the dissonance between the idea of like how creative work operates in lieu of like how the rest of the world and literally every other job on the planet operates yeah and, yeah but but i also get the sense that there's some like privilege operating as well like uh, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah no, i mean all of the <laughs> yeah the overriding the assumption May. for yeah. everything that i'm saying is this sort of privilege that exists within a certain sector of <laughs> yeah, yeah. literary fiction and then within the I media so yeah sure like, oh no yeah no i've just been fighting myself not to talk about privilege <laughs> but yes oh, like there's like an Let's asterisk no yeah, after everything i say there's a certain no there's a certain amount of privilege i yeah, 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 yeah. Can we nerd out about book covers? For yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love this book cover, mm. and then I saw the UK cover, and I fucking love that one too. Yeah, yeah. I've been really fortunate as far as covers go. Did you have like how much input did you have for this one? None. So I mean, at least in my situation, I was I saw the lot cover for the US iteration and my agent and I had talked about this prior to both of them coming out but we didn't want to unless we had an intense disagreement with the cover um we weren't gonna like say anything because Riverheaded they mean they're just really good at what they do and they really do know what they're doing I mean people that's like a recurring uh, chorus with people who approach Riverhead but it's true I mean they just they're really the best at what they're doing right yeah, now yeah, yeah. so I was amenable to the cover. I didn't really understand it at first, and as time went by, my editor talked to me about the thinking behind it, and the publicity folks talked to me about the thinking behind it, and my agent, you know, I chimed in with her. I was like, hey, like, do you like this cover? So I was I was really fortunate, and people seemed to really be into the cover, and it's quite different from a lot of Riverhead's other covers, which I thought was fascinating. But for the UK side, uh, I had a bit more of mm. a say mm-hmm. in that they told me the Atlantic votes told me a few different concepts and I got to choose one and like we just moved from there because the cover scene I suppose in every other country that is in the states is quite different from like what American readers or what yeah, literary yeah. publicists believe that American readers are going for and it, it's just uh it's temporal depending on like what they think that the book is about, for example, like uh, like with queer novels right now, or rather with cis queer novels right now, you have the sort of two tone grayscale um, motif that's been going on. Like uh-huh. a little life has that, and yeah, then also yeah, yeah. Uh, oceans novel Oceans, has that, yeah. and mm-hmm. 
yeah, quite a few that, that are coming out right now, or if you have the sort of rom-com novel, you'll have the two faces, like one facing one way, one facing the other Normal way. Normal people in conversation yes, with yeah, friends. Yes, yeah, yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, or you'll have like quite a large title um, to sort of uh, overscore like whatever it is that's happening. So Or like this, we did the 70s font for a mm-hmm. while, like Lena yeah. Dunham's book. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, just trying to like, because no one really knows what readers want. Although the thing that readers want is a good story. But we tried you know, trying to cue in on, but I was just really lucky. I was really lucky. The only thing that I really went in with coverage wise, is like a list of things that like, I absolutely did not want. Like what? Um, what's a good, like a skyline. Like, I think that that's <laughs> like, no, no, seriously. I, think, I thought that that would be like super lazy. Like it, like I thought that would be lazy. Like I thought like a fence would be lazy. I thought that I didn't want a rainbow on this uh, particular book. Uh, they snuck one in there. I didn't realize it until we were well until like, like I had like galleys before. Like I realized like, but you know, I quite like the way that it came out in the yeah, way it's that they subtle. did it. Yeah, it's yeah, subtle. yeah, yeah, I quite like it. Yeah, um, they didn't do, like, red, orange, yellow. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, because it was just sort of, like, signifying, like, hey, this is, like, a queer book that's only for queer people that I did not want. So I was just really fortunate. And, you know, the designers over there, they're really good. They're, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I haven't had any issues with that. We had Mark on, Mark Haber on last week. We were talking about his his. And he's like a book cover nerd too mm. because he sells books all day and mm-hmm. loves them too. So we talked about Reinhardt's Gardens cover and his input at Coffee House. So we just like to. His cover is so beautiful. It is. Yeah. yeah. He is the best cover. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's it has a splash of color like near the top. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really cool. Did you. So when you were composing your list of places to send to, mm. how did that come about? Did you. Like, how do you know what publishers you want to submit to? Mm. I think that an outsized reason that I wouldn't explicitly recommend to anyone, but I just like the cover of books and like the, you know, in the, like the way that like the book is designed and the way that the it's feel not a small is. Thing. Um, it's, it's not. It's not yeah. a small thing. I mean, that was that was quite important to me. Like, I wanted it to be an object that I would like to hold and like I would like to look at. And Riverhead, they make beautiful books i mean they just do so that was important to me also publishers that were amenable to like story cycles the sort of short story collection the way of constructing a short story mm-hmm. collection mm-hmm. that was really important to me riverhead has just like loads of authors that you know i quite admire you know i mean they were just up there for me based on who you read and- yeah 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 just based on like edgar carrot like i would quite like carrot's work and like it, laura is Eric's, um, editor as I well so yeah, it's just you know quite yeah, really fortuitous on my end. So we're into the lightning round, which oh. is esoterica. The category is opposites this season. So we're asking questions that can be the same and the opposite. What's the best part of traveling for work and the worst part of traveling for work? So the best part would be seeing friends in different cities. Yeah, usually my depending on the amount of time that I have, or at least with this tour iteration, because I'm not really, I'm out of tour mode now, and I do like a handful of events here and there, but I'm out of tour mode for a lot. Um, I'd fly into a city, you know, I'd sign books, and then I'd have the event, and that would be like part A of like, uh, the tour date and then like for me like everything after like seeing friends like going out to eat like getting drinks maybe like that was really great and really important to me and also I think that there's a way of touring that can be quite lonely if you don't like have friends in different places or acquaintances or people that are willing to meet up with you and I was fortunate in that like most everywhere I went I knew someone and you know they'd want to do something so that was really really great I think maybe the worst part about touring is the reorientation for me because I quite like traveling if I can stay in a place for a minute like Mm. more than like Mm -hmm. four or five days which is you know a privilege obviously and usually not feasible but when I travel I like to do that and with tour it's like you're here for like a day or maybe half a day and then like you're gone so reorienting every time I was in a new place was a bit tricky and when you, I know you just got back from Japan. Were you on, were you on assignment or were you, were you touring? Was that part of your tour? Uh, the lie that I've been telling people is that I was there to edit the book. <laughs> so that's, uh, I probably shouldn't stray too far from that answer okay. on the record. So <laughs> I was there to, it was, it was editing, uh, one more. Okay. Right on. What's the best thing about living in Houston and the worst thing other than 
random power outages. Random so traffic. Like, so, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't get traffic. Get traffic. Oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> the, the best thing is the people. I mean, it's the American city that I love most, and I think that's mm. because of the people, you know, just the sort of diversity of experiences, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, the people, I think, are the best thing. The worst thing about living in Houston. Oh, you can't say heat either. So, this is like categories where you have yeah, five words that you yeah, can't say. So like, and then, yeah, there are. I mean, I mean, every city has its problems. I feel like you've named like most of the issues. <laughs> but the, oh, the lack of. Uh, I guess it's tied to traffic. Uh, public the lack of yeah, the lack yeah. of public transit. No, no, that's, that's yeah. If, if Houston, yeah, if Houston had. Dude, Brian, you can get from the top of downtown to the middle of downtown mm-hmm. now. <laughs> In an hour, in, 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 in like traffic. Oh, you mean if you take the rail? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. You could do no, no. I mean, I stay out in Bel Air, so like now you like this like rampant, like just getting anywhere. No, no, it's just yeah, like it's too much. But if, yeah. I did, but there, there's another monorail in Post Oak, so now you can get from the oh. Galleria. Oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah. Another location. In the Galleria. So if you want to spend money, yeah, you yeah. can spend money on the monorail. Spend money, yeah. <laughs> you so that's, get on the monorail definitely... with your Gucci and Prada bags, yes, and get off and get a Starbucks drink. And exactly. Get right on. Yeah. yeah, to go to your Galleria hotel uh-huh. and then fly out the next day because no one can afford to yeah. <laughs> to do that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Uh, there we go. We love you, Houston. Yeah. What's been the best part of your collection of stories being so well received? And showing up on all the lists, and then is there a worst part to that? Uh, there's certainly a worst part. Uh, I th- the best part would be sharing the experience with the people who made the book come together because, like, my name is like on the cover or whatever, but I'm not even the most pivotal part of it, you know? Like, having that experience with my agent, having it with my editor, with my publicist over at Riverhead, my publicist assistant, who just does so much work. I mean, the publishing is run, like, on the backs of, like, people who are not paid what they should be paid. Like, all of the publicist assistants, all of the, like, editorial assistants in the EAs, like, they just do so much work. So, all the amazing fucking interns. Exactly, yeah. Lily Wolfmeyer, who's sitting to my left, being amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when I say, like, oh, like, Riverhead does so much, I mean, like, they, like, they made the book happen. So getting to... Well, there's some stuff I can't talk about yet that's going to happen. But seeing stuff that's, like, happening um, with the book is really great because I can say, oh, okay, like, everybody worked together to, yeah. like, make that happen. So that that's cool. Um, the worst part is, I mean, it's a bittersweet feeling, I think, any time that anyone talks about something that I'm doing. Because I'm not really someone that, like, seeks attention. So, like, seeing the book on a list is, like like the first list I saw and I was like oh great like like people will like care and like people will read it and then like you see another list and then another list and then I'll go like fuck you know it's like, it's like damn it <laughs> you know which which is like a shit thing to say because it's like because I it's a bittersweet feeling in that there was no point really where I had to worry about like okay is someone gonna pick this up and like read it which would and this would be a very conversation very different conversation if you know right. I was you know in that position but bittersweet in that as people read the book you know there's there's very little you can do about it and that's like the, sort of the, the name of the business but also like on my end like I view it as like there's an iteration of the book that I wrote and that's like mine and then once you send it out in the world like that's that has nothing to do with you yeah right yeah, so exactly. like I think having that separation myself and like talking to different folks prior to it coming out that had been through it the experience and like what they'd gone through was really helpful for me and that I could just wall myself off from certain things like I'm not really someone who reads a lot of the reviews I don't read a lot of the criticism like Riverhead because you're not a monster because yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you know like yeah I have friends who have like Google alerts for their names and I'm just like I, I get it oh, like I get it but like I could Sounds like, like I'm just uh, I have friends who do it so I won't say too much about that Jeez, but I, I couldn't I couldn't do that um because it's not yours like at that point uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's a way in which there's like an assumed responsibility on like the creator of a work to have to engage with the criticism surrounding the work but the criticism and the work they are not the same thing yeah that yeah. seems like a real healthy boundary we'll Good see work. 
yeah, we'll see, we'll see how long it lasts, you know. But but also I've been I've been so lucky with, with Lot specifically in that no one has like called me like a bullshitter like straight out, so I haven't had to run up against yeah. that, yeah, I, yeah, you yeah. know, that notion too often. But it could change with Memorial, like people could read it and just think that I oh, this this fucking guy, and then I'll have to reevaluate. Yeah. Fuck that, doubtful. <sighs> well. awesome. Brian, you're the best. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on. The thank show. y'all for having me. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fu Lu. Are there any post-roll questions you guys want to ask? I, I want to ask about food. What's been the best food in Houston? Or... What's been the best thing about the food scene in Houston and the worst scene? Impossible. Uh, the, the, <laughs> worst, the worst, the best thing. The best thing of it is the, it's a boring answer, but it means a lot to me, like the diversity mm-hmm. of cuisine. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like we're one of the few places in the States where you can have like good Vietnamese cuisine. I think that that's like deeply underappreciated. Oh, very um, much so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just the, the diversity of cuisine. I mean, you can have like a, a traditional Mexican breakfast in the morning and then you could eat um, Vietnamese cuisine for lunch and then you know yeah, Persian could, food for dinner yeah yeah, yeah, yeah Persian food for dinner like you could it's you know you can make you can live a number of different lives here like through the cuisine which I think is really significant and important uh, the worst thing and it's not like food. New York prices <laughs> like you can afford to eat. yeah you know like I have to go to New York for work from time to time and I'm just like not a New York person because like when I'm there like I'm there for work so I can expense things or other people can like pay for stuff for me <laughs> so my experience with New York is like so different from like everyday reality and yeah, I have to like, had to like you know if I like oh I have to like buy this meal you know like I'm not expensing <laughs> it and you know you see the receipt and I'm just like fuck this is like 27 bucks and it would be like nine like somewhere yeah, yeah, in Houston yeah. prior to a tip you know um but Absolutely. Yeah. I sent your I sent your noodle essay I forget which essay it was, but it was all about noodles. And I sent it to my foodie brother who uh, lives in New York. And I was like, you fucking missed the boat, dude. What are you doing with your life? Come yeah. back to Houston. No, I mean, that's that's certainly... The worst thing, I think, is, again, I would just reallude to the lack of public transit. Like, things are quite far. I mean, just based on... Since I'm in Bel Air-ish, I have access to like a bunch of different things, but like uh, you know, things are quite far. Like if you're willing to drive, um, yeah, you can get to the food. Mm-hmm, you but... can get to the good food. Yeah, but if you like stay out like in the Heights, let's say you don't have transportation, then like you're kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, which isn't to say that the Heights doesn't have great food, but like you are stuck in the Heights, so yeah. it's, <laughs> it's hard uh, to get to Chinatown. Yeah, it's Heights, difficult yeah. to. It's di- yeah, you have to run it. Uh, against a lot of different traffic and so people don't have that time depending on your job and like what your um, you know the constraints of your life awesome very good thank you so much Brian yeah thank y'all a lot for having me on yeah.